0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm talking to E. Summerson Carr, who is an associate professor of social work, anthropology, and comparative human development at the University of Chicago. She's also the author of the new book, Working the Difference, Science, Spirit, and the Spread of Motivational Interviewing, which was just published by the University of Chicago Press in September 2023.
1: Summerson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me uh, Claire and, and, and for engaging uh, my book.
0: Well, it, it's um, I'm a fan, so it is a pleasure a pleasure to have you um, have you here and speaking to us about this new book. I wonder if you could um, start by telling us a little bit about um, your career trajectory up to this point.
1: Sure. Um, so I am uh, an anthropologist and a social work and welfare scholar. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm jointly appointed in the anthropology department and the Crown Family School of Social Work Policy and Practice at the University of Chicago. Uh, I've been here almost 20 years, since 2004. Um, I did my PhD training in a really actually quite a unique program. Uh, That is the um, joint doctoral program in social work and social science at the University of Michigan. Uh, In in my case, um, that social science was anthropology. Um, I'd fallen in love with anthropology as an undergraduate um, who was uh, uh, majoring in Asian studies with a focus on Japan. by the time I got to um, thinking about graduate school, I really knew nothing about social work. Uh, My sense of the field was that it was proximate to some of the social justice causes I was interested in and had been involved with um, since my, really my late teens, early 20s, um, reproductive rights and welfare uh, rights in particular. And so, though I had these like very strong interests in anthropology and particularly uh, the anthropology of religion with a focus on the rise of new religious movements in post-war Japan, I also had this this sense that my interests were irresponsibly esoteric (laughs) Um, and that um, social work would offer something of a corrective. Um, So I applied really just to this program at Michigan thinking, Oh, I can be an anthropologist and an activist at the same time. Again, with the sense that social work, you know, was, was a field of activism. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, I had a lot to learn (laughs) and, um, Uh, The first step of my my doctoral career was getting um, an MSW, a Master's of Social Work, and I was totally disoriented in my clinical classes um, and was really kind of stunned by my first year field placement, which was in an addiction treatment program that had been designed specifically for homeless women. And after doing some client organizing there as a social work intern, I just couldn't get some of the dynamics I had witnessed um, out of my head. And so I jettisoned uh, the original plan to work in Japan and I returned there um, to the very same program as an ethnographer. a couple of years later to do my dissertation work. And that was really the beginning of what has been my focus since, uh, which is the anthropology of uh, social work and um, allied helping uh, professions. Um, so, So, you know, I feel very lucky. I pursued my studies in what seemed to me at the time, to be the heyday of interdisciplinarity. Um, Aside from this joint program in anthropology and social work, I um, also got a master's degree in gender studies along uh, the way. Um, But I also got just a very good disciplinary education um, uh, with just wonderful mentors uh, in anthropology at Credit, um, particularly Um, uh, uh, Webb Keen, uh, whose performance and performativity seminar came precisely at the right time uh, in my field work and got me um, thinking in new directions. And then I was really lucky to have one of the lead developers of gender-specific addiction treatment on my committee as well, a woman named Beth Glover-Reed. And she really helped me not just to, to sort of situate my site historically, um, but also held me accountable to the kind of uh, professional practices that I was uh, critically analyzing um, in a really important way. And I, I really tried to carry that lesson uh, with me.
0: Well, wonderful. Um, I... I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you came to write Working the Difference.
1: Yeah, So, um, gosh, I have to go back um, uh, several years to when I was drafting the conclusion to my first book, Scripting Addiction, which is, um, an, an, it is it's an ethnography of mainstream American addiction counseling. But it's really also a book about North American ideologies, ideologies of language, and um, models of personhood, um, and um, as I was thinking about what to do with the conclusion to the book, a senior colleague of mine, having read uh, a you know a, a, a draft of the manuscript said to me, you know, I know this isn't a prescriptive book, but don't you want to say something um, explicitly practical um, about treatment alternatives, um, other models that people who are in the field um, uh, might turn to? And, and you know, um, I will say that that, that um, I'm very pleased that some pe- people in uh, the field of addiction counseling have in fact read scripting addiction, but, the, you know, admittedly they were not my primary audience, but I was up for tenure at the point, And I thought I should probably take the advice of a senior colleague. And so I did start looking at, you know, what are the, what are the alternative models of addiction treatment out there? And that's when um, I first, uh, uh, learned about motivational interviewing, something I'd heard about um, but really didn't know much about. And um, as I think you know, Claire, motivational interviewing or or simply MI, which is um, uh, uh, often uh, uh, known uh, as, uh, began rather um, humbly um, as uh, an alternative therapy for um Uh, quote unquote, problem drinking, Um, and is now being used in fields as just, you know, wildly diverse as uh, dentistry, uh, primary health medicine, of course, counseling, psychology, uh, corrections, where it's made major inroads, and even water sanitation. Um, But because at the time, um, my my ethnographic object had been American addiction treatment. I was first enchanted not by MI's remarkable spread, which is really the focus of working the difference, but rather um, by the way it so concertedly um, questioned and tackled and I think took the wind, some of the wind out of the sails of a really um, central and very entrenched idea about addiction and its treatment. Um, particularly, um, and as scripting addiction um, uh, 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 explores at length, denial, uh, that is the the idea that addicts are the kind of people who Cannot see and read their own inner states um, has has long been the organizing heuristic in mainstream American addiction treatment. Practically speaking, this means that uh, the typical clinical encounter um, in addiction treatment is one in which the professional more or less explicitly relays that. Uh, number one, um, they already see and know the truth that the addict denies. And two, that recovery will be measured by the extent to which um, clients align their self-descriptions with the professional's perspective. And, you know, it's not surprising that this state of affairs um, is experienced often as very frustrating to both parties involved. Um, and, you know, it's arguably, um, a, a, you know, a, a rather violent setup, you know, not just because it it grants um, sovereign vision to the professional, the ability to see another's truth, um, but also because a professional in um addiction treatment is often a primary link to other kinds of critical resources and services. Um, uh, and that was certainly the case in the program that I studied. So, um, having witnessed and written about these engagements, um, and, and, and appreciating, um, how difficult this setup was for, um, uh, clients, and I would say s- scripting addiction is kind of a client's eye um, a client's view, um, or I t- really tried to get at the client's view of being in, in, in programs like these. Um, but having having seen both client and professional um, frustration uh, with these the, the 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 logics and the practices that are are, are built in, uh, to this form of treatment, and now searching the field for alternatives, I was first really struck by the fact that MI replaces the idea of denial with amb- ambivalence, which is its organizing concept. So, you know, one of the first things I read about MI is that um, denial uh uh, is understood as simply a difference between two different people's ways of looking at the same problem. You know, that is the professionals and the clients, rather than a psychic attribute of the client. So this is, you know, a huge epistemological shift and and therefore a really um, practical one because it it means um, rather radically, <laughs> Regrounding the question of an individual's suffering and the practical practical uh, uh, means of addressing it, right? Because once interaction uh, rather than interiority uh, is taken as the grounds of therapeutic work, um, the professional becomes someone who can conversationally rebuild a problem rather than simply recognize it um, and, and help chart out possible courses of remedy. Um, you know, I, I want to be careful. Um, you know, this doesn't magically level the playing field as um, between clients and professionals, which, you know, I hope I'm, I'm careful Uh, to point out throughout uh, the book. But I do think it leads to better and more constructive um, engagements um, uh, for all of the, the, uh, you know, for for both the client and the professional, perhaps especially uh, the professional. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll just add that, you know, ambivalence is... You know, if ambivalence um, is assumed to be the grounds of therapeutic action, which it is an MI, you know, mo- both the client and the professional do have more room to maneuver um, in searching for ways to understand behavior. You know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, amb- ambivalence leads you to conversations, well, it could be. Or sometimes seems, you know, which is far more capacious than it is, and you either see it or you don't, which is, is, you know, um, uh, what, what, you know, we see uh, uh, in the case of denial.
0: Well, well, the book um, has some really wonderful um, sort of close readings and and analyses of um, motivational interviewing training, including you know like videotapes that are used in training and things like that, and um, I. I wanted, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you to, to play a little bit of them, or if you could, if you could tell us what motivational interviewing sounds like, but you've, you've got this line in the book that says that if you can tell somebody's motivational, inner motivationally interviewing you, they're not doing it right. <laughs> <That's> so, right. <laughs> can, can, can you give us a, like, like what is, what does this sound like in practice? What does this look like in practice? How does it kind of work on the ground? Yeah. So yeah, You know, I knew you were going to ask me this. So
1: I knew you were going to ask me both what is motivational interviewing, which is a big question, and also to give an example of what it sounds like. And you you probably um, already um, have imagined that I had a pretty complicated answer um, to that seemingly straightforward question, you know, what is MI? And it makes it kind of difficult to answer the second half of your question, which is what does it sound like? But I'm gonna give it a shot. So um, but first, you know, I will say that you know, MI um uh, is is perhaps most obviously a counseling method that um on the one hand um draws on um Rogerian um Uh, Or the humanistic tradition of psychotherapy, um, which has essentially become synonymous with ethically sound, politically progressive therapeutic practice over the last uh, 50 years or so. So, um, you know, in that tradition, um, therapy is seen as a way of being with people, which, you know, casts the therapist as really a supportive witness To uh, clients, self-realization, reflective listening, uh, rather than explicit guidance, is the key technology. Um, And Rogerian therapy was really concertedly framed itself as non-directional. So MI is draws heavily from the Rogerian tradition, but MI is also a behavioral therapy, which is reflexively directional, <laughs> so um, you know it is focused on changing behavior and the ways people um, think and talk about their behavior. So, first of all, the the you know the fact that MI is a counseling method that straddles this division um, between behaviorism and humanism um, in counseling psychology is pretty remarkable in and of itself. Um, you know, MI is also an evidence-based practice. So that's another way to answer the question of what, you know, what is this thing? Um, I think one of the things that I, I learned, um, uh, along the way is that evidence-based practice is a, a bureaucratic category as much as a, a scientific one, um, which I, you know, I explain at length in the book. Um, so, You know, the study of MI for me enlightened a much larger uh, phenomena, which is um, that the production of evidence-based practices involves just this really wide range of actors, Um, not just applied scientists, but charitable foundations, uh, public and private insurers, you know, state and federal agencies, um, health and human service organizations who work in tandem to register and legitimate certain practices as evidence-based ones. And once that that moniker evidence based gets attached to a method like MI, it really acts like a kind of passport. It greenlights the adoption of that method, uh, not just by various service agencies, but also sometimes by entire states. Um, in large part because it renders that method reimbursable. And there is no question that um, um, MI's uh, status as an evidence-based practice has um, certainly facilitated its spread. The other thing that I think is kind of confusing um, is, you know when we think about therapeutic practices, we often think, well, they're for clients, right? They're, they're designed for clients. And, you know, it's not as if that is not true, but actually one of MI's, um, lead, um, uh, developers and proponents very explicitly told me something that I really, um, uh, uh, corroborated, I think through my research is, is very much true, which is MI is an intervention for professionals. So, It is a way of reforming helping professionals ways of interacting with clients, um, uh, which eases um, their frustration and burnout. I mean, in the United States, helping professionals uh, typically work in really uh, resource poor conditions um, where, you know, their their ability to supply um, services just never can meet. Demand and and they're also dealing with very complex problems um, that you know elude um, um, simple definitions and solutions and 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 therefore helping professionals have to deal with a lot of failure a lot of coming up short there's a regular need to triage there's a lot of compassion fatigue turnover burnout and so forth and am I I have, I have witnessed firsthand that MI can not, it's not for everyone, but can certainly rejuvenate um, burned out professionals. It gives them a different way of approaching their work. Uh, It focuses them on the here and now of their interactions with clientele. And for those who go on to become trainers themselves, you know, it, it, um, it introduce, MI introduces them to a, a whole community of, of practitioners who, you know, remarkably feel bound together spiritually as well as professionally. Um, and, and the book is is focused on people who take up MI training, um, not just practicing MI, but MI training. And, and they take it up not as a job, but as a vocation. Um, And that term is, is, I think, very important here. So, you know, if you asked, am I this proponents, the same question of what am I is, I think many would tell you that it is a spirit of engagement. Um, Of course, this is interesting to an anthropologist, you know, what is this thing called am I spirit? And, and, you know, as I detail in the book, am I is a professional movement. I mean, there are 1700 members of the motivational interviewing network of trainers who, you know, feel uh, personally and professionally transformed by MI and particularly MI spirit and therefore devote themselves to spreading the word or to paying it forward, which is a term I heard a lot. I mean, this is an old American idea, which, you know, Weber famously explained. Um, You know, it it wants an economic and a religious idea where, you know, one's labor is 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 oriented toward um, not toward accumulation, but like continual expansion. And that's, you know, really very much at play. So that's, you know, um, a a bunch of reasons why when studying MI, um, it's dissemination. That is how it's trained by professionals to other professionals is really where the action is. Now, I'm getting a little closer, I think, to the question of what it sounds like. Um, but, it, you know, this is another way of explaining what MI is, uh, which is in line with its one of its self-descriptions, which is it is a highly disciplined way of speaking. Um, you know, Miller and Rolnick, um, uh, the, the um, lead proponents of MI, describe it as a conversation style. And it's a conversation style that is complete with its own poetic features <laughs> that take years to master. Um, so insiders will, will liken it to like learning to play piano. And you, you, you may start at chopsticks, um, but, you know, when you're doing it, you sound like, you know, when you're really doing it, you're going to be sounding like Beethoven, right? Or learning how to dance. Like, you know, you first learn the steps, and then eventually you dance like Astar and Rogers. These are their references, by the way, not mine. Um, um, so, you know, whether um, professionals are, you know, primarily attracted to MI as a set of um, rhetorical techniques which they can develop and sharpen, um, or if they're, you know, engage with this what they call the spirit of MI as a way of connecting with others, um, which is quite different from the confrontational style that I described earlier um, in addiction treatment. Um, It's also because of the um, intricacy of the register of the conversation style. It's also kind of apprenticeship. I mean, it's a really a way of turning helping professionals into lifelong learners. Um, and I think that's been really attractive to, um, to, uh, many, many, um, uh, practitioners of it. So, so I don't want to be recalcitrant and ask answering the question of what it sounds like. Um, and there are examples out there, you know, um, Uh, and as you say, there are, um, uh, films, which are one of the ways that MI is, is trained and disseminated. Um, but I think it's more enlightening for me to share why I cannot effectively perform a motivational interview, (laughs) even, even after like so many years of attending and observing and participating in, in training and coaching activities, you know, I think that that it's gonna it's would be a little more helpful to explain like why I can't, um, you know, why I would why I would only be able to provide a very poor um, example of it, and I think that that's because you know there are these you know pretty straightforward technical components of MI as a conversation style, they're actually not particular to MI. So for example there are reflections, which in MI are guesses and rearticulations of what clients might be saying. Um, there are open questions, you know, which are designed to elicit more um, client speech. There are affirmations, there are summaries. So there are these certain compositional speech acts along with a set of principles about, you know, how each can be effectively deployed in what order so that clients feel like they have talked themselves into change, which importantly is the goal of all MI sessions, right? So um, as Miller will say, you know, <clears throat> um, you know, if if you know you're telling someone explicitly what to do, you are not doing a motivational interviewing. The goal is to get them to say. What you want them to do, right? So, so, but all of these kind of speech acts are really just the beginning, and um, you know, one of the book's chapters in particular really delves into the poetics of mi. So, pause is just one example. So, there's just very patterned and rather unusual use of micro pauses in mi that you know do. Many, these pauses do a lot of things. They can stimulate more talk on the part of clients, um, they can project this the sense, you know, help help the professional project the sense of being, you know, an especially thoughtful and attuned listener, um, but they also allow the professional to kind of hold the floor and subtly steer the conversation. There's a lot of attention to intonation. Um, and I think because, you know, um, there are these delicacies, um, of, of, you know, how to effectively communicate. Um, And there is no script, it's all improvisation. Um, You know, um, it's just, it's an incredibly hard thing to learn, at least to do well. So, you know, MI insiders say, it's a style of conversation that is simple, but not easy. And so, you know, I, I've never perfected this style of speaking. I can tell who has, you know, so like not long into my study, I could like make pretty good guesses that, you know, who learned MI from a textbook versus who maybe attended a single training, not, you know, not conducted by a Mint member versus like who had gone through extensive training um, by members of the Mint. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm
0: so sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> no, I really no.
1: can't do a good motivational interview.
0: <laughs> That's a wonderful, thorough answer. Thank you. Um, I, I want to get into um, our, our next question, which is how you went about studying motivational interviewing, because it seems like from reading your book that this was more than a decade of field work that you went to in-person trainings and uh, were involved in online forums, that you developed relationships with its founders. So um, yeah, tell us tell us about your research methods.
1: Yeah. I mean, the last thing you said is really important and something that I just truly appreciate about um, this community of professionals. There was just I had a tremendous amount of access. I I can count on one hand the number of times I asked for an interview or to observe, um, you know, a training and was turned down and people were really interested. And I think it does have something to do there. There is this interesting, I think like uh, something I really appreciate way of, you know, just kind of, being interested in the different ways people see things. Um, And so they kind of were interested in like, you know, oh, how would an anthropologist, you know, think about what we're doing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so this was kind of a long slog though. Um, uh, I started the project in 2009. Um, The fieldwork took a really long time. And part of this is just the episodic um, and multi-sided nature of MI training. Um, So, you know, there was this year-long initiative, um, training initiative, um, uh, that is at the center of the book. But I also looked for trainings that would give me, you know, a reasonably representative sample, you know, in terms of different size of trainings, the audience, you know, the level, um, and of course, you know, who the trainers were. Uh, I, you know, I definitely wanted to see the masters in action, which I achieved. Um, but I also, you know, was interested like, well, what does MI training look like for people who are really interested in this, but are not members of the mint. Um, so I made several regional trips around the country that allowed me to talk to different groups of trainers. Um, uh, and this helped me understand the kind of, you know, state-based incentives that cause some mentees to actually migrate to states like North Carolina or Oregon or California, where um, MI training is actually s- mandated for different groups of professionals in order for their them to receive public reimbursement. So, um, so yeah, so I did, I did quite a bit of, of traveling around um I I also used those trips to conduct a, a number of interviews I was very lucky to um be able to interview uh William Miller um <clears throat> in length um on on several occasions and um I there was just also like just archivally it, I mean this was the, a little bit of the I mean this. That trying to keep up with the literature in MI, I mean, right now, there are almost 2,000 RCT studies alone of motivational interviewing. So just to keep up with the academic literature was really difficult. Um, and then came the writing, which for me was not straightforward. I mean, I found MI and its dissemination really quite difficult to capture. capture. I mean, it has such a rich and complicated history just thought it was a challenging object. I mean, part of this is its proclivity to to embrace difference, to be, you know, so many things to so many different kinds of people. So it's hard to to pin down and writing about paradoxes is, is kind of tricky business. And then I guess, you know, the last thing I would say um which you know, I hope I I'm sure I'm sure your listeners can many of your listeners can relate to, which is Writing about experts is is sort of daunting, you know, particularly, you know, in in this case, you know, many of my informants were also uh, academics, um, some uh, holding posts at my very university. They're also prolific readers and writers uh, in their own right. And I was absolutely sure I was, and I will, um, there will be responses to this book from the community um, themselves, And so I was really aware as I was writing that my audience was going to read and respond. And it gave me, you know, I just kept thinking to myself, this kind of knowledge, you know, of like, there is going to be a response, we should always have that, you know, whoever we're writing about, but um, it, that really brought things into focus. And I think, you know, um, uh, maybe gave me some, some healthy trepidation along the
0: way. <laughs> Sure. Well, one of the central claims of the book is that motivational interviewing is an, a uniquely American phenomenon. I wondered if you could say a little bit more of, about how it's quintessentially American.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, first, yes, yeah, uh, uh, following up on what I just said is, you know, I, I, I have to say that, you know, my interlocutors in the world of MI, Um, it's probably gonna be one of the things they object to the most. Um, My characterization of the method is distinctly American. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for this. I mean, one is MI does have a significant international presence, um, including strongholds in the UK and Scandinavia, as well as the United States, Um, you know, The MI textbook has been translated into a couple dozen languages. Uh, MI is being trained in in a number of countries. And I think that something like 40 to 45% of the membership of the Motivational Interview Network of Trainers. Um, don't reside in the United States. So these things are all true. Um, They don't really bear on my argument that am I as distinctively American. Um, And I I should just clarify that when I say it's distinctively American, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that this is, you know, some kind, you know, it's representative of national demographics. Um, But rather to say, for me, to say something's American means to say that, you know, it is the ideological product of a particular institutional and political history. And, and by way of this history, we know that many American products, uh, uh, including therapies and counseling methods, um, uh, travel internationally um, and that they do so with, you know, apparent ease, um, you know, as if they're unaided by labor or capital Um uh has you know interested a lot of uh contemporary anthropologists so so you know so this is all a way of saying that at least anthropologically speaking that we can't talk about what is american without engaging in an inquiry into who and you know what and whose ideas um become institutionally entrenched and and mainstreamed. so you know um this kind of historical work um Uh, I had to really do in parallel with MI's official origin story, which is told by its American founder and leader develop uh, and leading developer, uh, uh, William Miller, um, by way of his own international travels. So um, if MI kind of began parochially uh, in uh, uh, a Milwaukee VA, Um, He says it developed as he traveled to Norway and then to Australia, where he met his um, co-author, Steve Rolnick. And it's according to Miller that there, you know, through this series of um, serendipitous overseas encounters, he was able to specify and articulate what he already knew deep inside. And that is this spirit of engagement that can be operationalized through a set sort of conversational techniques. So it is this combination for Miller um, of spirit and technique um, that uh, he and his colleagues and his his many accolades have developed as MI over the last forty years. Um, and so, and because MI. Um, Proponents in the United States commonly frame MI spirit as transcendent and MI techniques as if they are features of a universal language um, that allows them to speak to people wherever it's practiced. This idea of mine that it's very American, um, uh, you know, I think I can expect significant uh, pushback now, (laughs) um, you know, um, so. I do think all of that said, that MI draws on and manages uh, historically specific Anglo-American norms and values. Um, So this includes translating um, paradigmatically American tropes of democratic democratic governance uh, into therapeutic exchange, which I address in chapter one. Um, just for example, the way M.I. sues the tension between authority and autonomy. Um, Mm -hmm. Chapter two looks at M.I.'s uh, adoption and adoption of uh, rhetorical forms and formula that were developed by white colonial settlers since the establishment of the republic Um, and the kind of dilemmas faced by um, American public figures and speakers across political, uh, religious, and, and therapeutic settings as they work to realize the norm of sincerity and speech. Um, the third chapter delves into MI's grounding in American Protestant I- I- ideals, um, including its formulation of the idea of spirit which you know communes and transcends, which importantly motivates labor and ethically justifies um, capital accumulation in a way that really remarkably recalls Faber's um, uh, famous account. Uh, chapter four looks at MI science, and total quality management and the production of MI's evidence base and really takes off from MI's lead British proponents worry that American science is preoccupied with um, what he calls the product productization of care. Uh, and then chapter five is focused on MI's um, uh, vernacularization of uh, American pragmatism. I mean, capital P, practice, pragmatism, um, this school of, um, you know, American philosophical thought beginning with, you know, Dewey, James Purse, so forth, and, you know, developed by Mead and others, which I found to be one of the most sort of interesting um, and uh, uh, and productive elements of MI. So, and I already spoke to the, you know, the, the less surprising ways that you know, um, MI um, draws on different schools of American psychology. Um, but remarkable in the fact that these schools of psychology have long been at uh, philosophical odds um, and have organized the ways that psychotherapists have been trained, um, you know, for decades in the United States. So I, I hope the book, uh, I mean, that's kind of a summary, but I hope the book does a Um, uh, you know, a a fairly good job at substantiating the claim that this is an American uh, practice.
0: Well, I think it does. And then the other thing it makes clear is that a motivational interviewing is just full of paradoxes and that that, that's the difference that you talk about in terms of working the difference, how it manages to be both and doing two things at the same time. um, Really, um, really a uh, f- fascinating account for anybody who has um I work in a college of medicine and we try to teach some of the principles of of motivational interviewing to our our medical students um and um I just find this this sort of critical sociology and anthropology of the health professions to be so illuminating um when when um we think about doing those kinds of things. Um, I, I guess that we're, we're running short on time. So I, I want to, um, have time before we get to our traditional final question to, um, talk about your conclusion, um, which reflects on some of the things that present day motivational interviewing practitioners and anthropologists have in common. So, um, yeah, so how, how did you um, come to relate to the um, mentees that you studied um, as an anthropologist for so many years?
1: Yeah, well, there. I mean, there were certainly differences. You know, I think, you know, <laughs> um, the differences c- c- come, come through. Um, uh, but I, I do have to say I felt a kind of kinship to... Um, am I training as someone who'd been anthropologically trained because I think there's a shared commitment to pragmatism, you know, so it goes back to that pragmatism idea, you know, so, yeah, I think first of all, that means, um, you know, disabusing ourselves of the idea that one can or should achieve some kind of complete Vision of complex problems or other uh, social phenomena—you know that's not a good place from which to work ethnographically or therapeutically. Um, you know the idea that cases would get funneled into diagnoses that you know suggest particular courses of action or treatment, and you know this is one of few things. And, and thank you for you know um, uh, mentioning Mi's penchant for paradox, which is. Um, you know, really interesting, you know, this kind of yes-and way of approaching, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, partisan issues. But there's one thing that MI like just straight out rejects. And that is there, they just, there is no room for diagnostic reasoning um, in MI. And I found it quite moving, if admittedly, um, kind of risky in some senses to see, MI trainers really concertedly promote a very abductive rather than deductive way to approach um, problems. Um, so, you know, the idea is that you engage with what is presented, with what you encounter, um, rather than working um, with some pre formulated generalized understanding of people. And problems that can just be kind of plopped down, you know, wherever wherever one lands. And so, I I think that I think there's a real kinship there.
0: Well, Summerson, thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. It's a it's a wonderful book um, for anybody um, interested in in all of these things: um, American culture, anthropology, um, the history of psychology um, covers, covers a lot of ground and has just a really, um, nuanced and, and, and beautifully written analysis. So, um, that brings us to our traditional final question here on the new books network, which is what are you working on next?
1: Okay. Well, I am really excited about this. So I'm going to be mindful of not going on too long about it. I've just come off a year long research sabbatical, um, And so that explains some of my excitement. But my new work focuses on the entry of dogs into health and human services. So I'm particularly interested in and have been following a cohort of facility dogs. And this is a category of working dogs who are trained for the first two years of their lives to conduct uh, full-time nine-to-five human service work typically for a contractual tenure of eight years. Um, so this kind of interspecies care just has raised so many interesting questions for me. Some of them are questions about language and communication and care that I've been interested in um, really all, you know, that it's kind of a through line of all of my work. But, um, you know, remarkably, this form of training really operationalizes the idea that dogs can connect with and soothe people in ways that humans, especially even those who are trained in human services, cannot. And 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 proponents consistently point to dogs um, extraordinary and even magical um, ability to speak to populations that are considered particularly hard to reach. And their claim hinges so often on the fact that canines are not confined to or by language, which raises really fascinating questions about, you know, the traditional talking cure and the, you know, the perceived limits of uh, human communication. There are also a lot of really interesting questions about human service labor, you know, so like, what does the influx of canine workers um, signal about, you know, the perceived gaps and, U.S. human services, should we read dog's entry um, into these fields as some kind of commentary about humans' ability to care for one another and the qualities, uh, you know, organization of that care? Um, I'm interested in how human service workers respond to their new canine co-workers, you know, do they feel demoralized or buoyed? You know, when a a dog takes up part of their professional charge and, you know, there's been a lot written about the, the alienating effects of automation on the health and human service sector. But, you know, does it feel better to be replaced by a dog than it does to be replaced by a robot? You know, I, I mean, I think that's a real question. And, you know, there are also, I think, serious questions about, you know, humans aside, um, you know, how should we approach the question of dog, uh, dog's labor, which is after all unpaid and, and arguably unfree. So, you know, what are the ethical implications of putting dogs to work in settings where human service workers regularly experience burnout, secondary trauma, compassion, fatigue, and the like. So, um, You know, it's just been uh, super fun to um, figure out how to take uh, dogs as ethnographic interlocutors, how to study dogs, um, but also to carry through a lot of um, the questions that have remained um, uh, with me all through my uh, career.
0: Well, that's absolutely fascinating, Summerson. and I I hope you'll come back onto the New Books Network once that project is done, because I'm sure we'd love to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for for taking time to share your work with us today.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much, Claire. I've really enjoyed talking with you.